We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Good evening. Yeah, good evening, Keith. And by phone, we welcome back to the show Taiwan-based contract reporter Ralph Jennings, who's covered Taiwan for the likes of the LA Times, the Christian Science Monitor, and Forbes. Uh, Ralph, thanks for being here again. Yeah, thanks for having me again. On the show today, the death penalty is back in the news this week with two criminal cases. We'll be getting an expert opinion on both of those. A bit later, expectations for gender representation in the new cabinet were not met in a big way. We'll be discussing the controversy surrounding that. And we'll be rounding things out with another big controversy. Uh, the new administration will need to confront the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial. Should it stay or should it go? We'll be talking about all of that, but first... Uh, we've got a bevy of stories on Taiwan's diplomatic front. Both the government uh, and the DPP are looking for their footing on a number of issues. Uh, we're going to start with one that we've covered a bunch of times before uh, because it just popped up in the news again yesterday. Uh, fishing rights and the Akanatori Reef. Gavin, catch us up on that. Yes, the Taiwan fishing boat, the Dongsheng Chi 16, arrived back at its home port in Pingdong Thursday of this week. Of course, that boat was taken by um, Japanese Coast Guard authorities on April the 25th and detained until a, well, they called it a security deposit of 1.7 million NT was paid to secure the boat's release with the crew and the captain. Mm -hmm. They arrived back in Pingdong County Thursday, like I said, and they were met by the Premier. Premier Simon Jung was there and he vowed basically to seek justice for the fishermen. They're his words, not mine. Mm. And he met with the families of the fishermen that were on the boat and he said the government will seek justice for them and will continue to protect Taiwan fishing boats operating in international waters. Now, what's interesting is, of course, the National Fishermen's Association, who paid the 1.7 million NT, are now hoping that the government will get the money back from Japan. Right, because if they don't, then it looks like they're accepting that they did something wrong. They're accepting that they accept Japan's claim to a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone around the Okanotori Atoll. Mm. Which, of course, Japan claims, but the Mar administration here says, no, no way, it's only an atoll. It's not a landmass. Ergo, you can't have 200 nautical miles of sea claim around it. So, bottom line, things uh, that story's not going away. It's not going away. It's, well, it's, it's actually heating up, of course, because mm. what's rather disturbing is um, two patrol boats, one from the Coast Guard and one by the from the Fisheries Agency, are now operating in waters somewhere close to that 200 nautical mile exclusion zone area. Mm, really pushing the boundaries. They're pushing the boundaries there. And also the military sent one of its Lafayette frigates there this week as well. Mm. Now, the military has said the frigate will not be entering the 200 nautical mile exclusion zone, but will be on the peripherals of that and be ready to respond quickly in the event of any incident, mm. according to the military. Now, there are concerns now, of course, that a standoff or something could happen. Yeah. When you have, you know, the, the sea's a large area, but when you put lots of boats in the same area, the sea isn't quite as large as you think it is when you look at Google Earth. Yeah, a little bit of bumper boats going on there. Yes. Let's shelve that story for a second because we have one that's uh, somewhat related and we can kind of tie them two uh, together just a little bit. But uh, 
It also looks like Taiping Island is now the hot travel spot for uh, prominent former KMT officials this week. Yeah, they popped off there yesterday as well. They popped off to um, Taiping Island, as you said, Keith, on a rather controversial visit, which apparently the fuel for this visit cost 200,000 NT. But that's not uh, that's the only not, thing that's, that's controversial not the only about thing it. Controversial? No, they flew off there, and of course the government said this is to show and underscore ROC sovereignty over the island. However, but this follows, of course, we should mention right off the bat, hot on the heels of uh, President Ma's visit back in January. Yes, and of course this visit was another. Let's let's say ROC sovereignty over the island, the Taiping Island. But of course everyone went, hang on a minute. What about non-KMT people? They're not invited, and then the government went, oh, but. Mm. So, and this, of course, caused some controversy, and a legislative committee said, right, we're going to freeze assets, and we're not paying it, and if you want to go there, you can pay yourself. Yeah, I saw that. Did they end up paying for themselves? Or? Well, no, because no one said. The, the, the Ministry of Defence yesterday came out and said it cost over 200,000 NT for the fuel mm-hmm. for the C-130 transport aircraft, which took them from Pingdong Air Base to Taiping Island. Mm-hmm. Them will include the names, shall we? Former Premier Hal Baitsun and Mao Jiaguo, two former Premiers there. Mao Jiaguo being a more recent one, Hal Baitsun being a Premier under Lee Dong Hui. Um, former National Security Council Secretaries General Su Chi and Hu Wei Ren, and also a few, several other former KMT government officials basically went there. Yeah. Now, there was concern that it could raise tensions. Right, another example of something that could raise tensions but, in the South uh, and, I guess, East China Sea. But ironically, it's only going to raise tensions if anybody writes about it. And to be honest with you, I don't think anyone outside Taiwan's going to care about these old codgers, one could call them, going to a nice little idyllic island in the South China Sea for the day. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, let's get Ralph's take on this. So, so here we kind of have uh, two stories uh, that could potentially see international tensions rise in the region. Uh, but, uh, I mean, do you just see these as kind of blips as the KMT is getting out and we're transitioning to uh, a new government? Or, or could this have a more lasting effect on the uh, regional diplomatic situation? I would go with the blips theory. And, and here's why. As you mentioned earlier, Ma himself went in January, got a lot of attention for it. And then they took a group of journalists uh, down there a month or two later. And now we have this trip by the former officials, which I think is all coming down to a couple of things. One is Ma Ying-jeou and the KMT taking a stand that if we really believe in Republic of China sovereignty claims, wherever they may be, including, you know, this partly covers the, the, the flap with Japan. But anyway, with the South China Sea, they need to make sure that they're coming out strong on that because the DPP government might not do the same once they're in office later in this, this month. Um, also, the other thing that kind of gets lost in the debate is the... Uh, the UN tribunal that is going to use the Convention on the Law of the Sea to determine whether the Philippines is correct in saying that China has no right to claim this nine-dash line around almost the entire sea, and Taiwan claims that same line. In fact, that's where China got it from. So the Ma government has made quite a bit of noise to stand up to the Philippines um, and every time I believe they go or they have a chance to speak out, they say, look, this is an island, it's not a rock, it's not a, a reef, it's got running water and goats and whatever else is down there living in their little ecosystem. <clears throat> so I think that's what's at stake. And then um, once Tai is in office, um, the issue won't go away, but Taiwan will kind of step back the way it, to where it used to be. 
And of course, that's that's why it's so important that they sample the water and have the the local fruit from the island. Uh, that's why that's always a big part of the trip. Yeah. Uh, but do you also expect uh, her to kind of back off the Akanatori uh, Atoll issue? Uh, is this also more a reflection of KMT policy? I think so. The KMT has always, you know, as part of its, you know, long-standing cause for existence, they've, they've been a you know, since the war against Japan and China in the 30s and 40s, they really, they've never officially liked Japan. And, of course, Taiwanese people love Japan, so the KMT doesn't push it too far. And they are kind of, you know, strong de facto allies. Um, but I think that the KMT is, is, is pushing that. It, it's part of its party platform, and it also wants to stand tall over the DPP saying, like, you know, look, this is another issue we care about. We're flexing our muscle on foreign policy. Uh, we need to stand up for our rights with, for, for uh, fishing boats. Fishing boats from Taiwan go all over the world doing things in all sorts of waters. So um, it, it's a significant lobby from what I understand, and I think the KMT needs to um, they need to make as many marks as they can before leaving office. You know, the next local elections are just going to be two or three years away. So there's always an election somewhere in Taiwan if you, you know, look, check your calendar. Um, so, you know, they're still they're fighting for their future. Hmm. All right. Well, uh, we'll wait to see what kind of uh, taste that leaves in the voters' mouths. I think a, a lot of them are pretty critical of uh, the KMT making these last-minute moves and asserting this last-minute authority, but uh, perhaps it'll play better with uh, some of the less vocal observers out there. Uh, but we're going to leave behind uh, those two stories and uh, now move over to uh, a sticky wicket that the DPP finds itself in. Of course, uh, the diplomatic issue they face down this week is... Uh, trying to get their footing right on the 1992 consensus issue. Uh, of course, we're looking forward to uh, Tsai Ing-wen's inaugural address on the 20th, uh, and all eyes are going to be on how she formulates that 1992 consensus policy, or some cross-strait policy. It might not include any reference to the 1992 consensus, because, of course, as the KMT is very uh, apt to point out, uh, that has been the basis of cross-strait relations for the past couple of years. Um, but it also includes within it the uh, one-China policy, which uh, many in the DPP couldn't support uh, ever. So Tsai finds herself in a bit of a, a tricky situation and f- trying to get the right formula there for cross-strait relations. Uh, and it came back up into the news, this 1992 consensus, this week uh, because of one Frank Shea, Gavin. Yeah, of course, former Premier Frank Shea, who's going to be the island's representative to Japan under the Tsai administration. Well, he was interviewed in a Japanese newspaper earlier this week, and they, of course, they brought up, so what do you think of the 1992 consensus? And being a tactful chap, as Frank Shea is, who used to be the mayor of Kaohsiung, of course, he turned around and said, well, the party does not recognise the existence of the so-called 1992 consensus, but does acknowledge that there was a meeting between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait in 1992. That's That's not a huge revelation. Not a revelation. It took place in Hong Kong in April of 1992 between the Straits Exchange Foundation and China's Association for Relations Across the Taiwan Strait. And there were cameras and newspaper writers and all kinds of people keeping records there. Well documented, they went and played (laughs) in Hong Kong for a few days. But of course, what's not well documented is the fact, did they come to an agreement during this meeting? Right. Which, of course, the DPP says they didn't, while the KMT says they did. What is at issue is the fact that the 1992 consensus wasn't called the 1992 consensus until Su Chi. He's the same chap that went to Taiping Island this week. 
if anyone's interested. He coined the phrase several years later, quite mm-hmm. a few years later, in fact, and said, well, at the meeting we came to this agreement. And, well, where, where's the agreement been for the past few years then? Oh, no, we had the agreement, and it's called the 1992 Consensus, which basically means that Beijing and Taipei can interpret the meaning of one China as they see fit. And so then Mr. Xia, you know, he makes these comments, uh, and they're kind of picked up in the press uh, and portrayed as being a huge departure from past uh, DPP cross-strait policy. He's asked to clarify, and he kind of says, no, nah, not really. Not really, because we know you had a meeting, but we don't really recognize it. And, if, and his greatest line was, if you have any more questions about this, ask the incoming president. Mm. Which they're in charge, so yeah, ask them. Right. So, uh, Ralph, I mean, wh- wh- what do you take away from this whole uh, episode? Is uh, is was Frank Shia offering anything new uh, on the 1992 consensus, or is this basically consistent from what the DPP has been saying all along? I, I, I don't think he's offering anything new. Perhaps the language he used in giving that interview was technically new in in terms of wording, but not really in terms of nuance. Right. And. And I, yeah, as you mentioned, um, Tsai England has always acknowledged, that, as far as I know, that there was indeed a meeting in 1992, as we understand it to be. She disputes whether the consensus was as um, the KMT government says it was. Um, as to whether she accepts it, um, I think what she's really, she, her problem with it is the, the one China idea, even though both, each side gets to define China as it wants to, the uh, DPP prefers not even to use the ROC moniker if it doesn't have to. It's got China in it. It's a KMT thing, KMT creation. And Tai has long said that she would rather speak to China uh, on conditions that each side is doesn't have to define itself, or even better, that that each side would be uh, you know a separate country, a separate entity. And I remember before she started the campaign. Um, People in the party would say it would be great to negotiate under the, you know, against the backdrop of uh, the WTO or some, you know, some international organization. And of course, China would have no use or any patience for these ideas. So that's why we're all waiting around to see what she comes up with now. Hmm. Right, and there's just not that much uh, room for maneuver here, so uh, we might as well... We, we, we've we already asked a lot of our guests on the show to uh, speculate wildly about what might come out of that uh, May 20th speech. So, uh, Ralph, how about we give you an opportunity as well? Uh, do, do you have any kind of uh, expectations for what we might hear? I kind of think that she won't say anything new. There's really no... She doesn't have to. She could come out and say the same things that she has said uh, since, the cam- since the election and, and during the campaign as well, but... She's open to negotiating with China. She's not going to shake up the status quo. There's going to be no independence, no war. Um, she won't reduce or, you know, cancel any of the deals that were reached between, with China under Ma Ying-jeou. Um, and then she'll just leave it at that. And because a lot of these deals are already functioning, there's a high level of, of um, interaction, a high level of, of trade and investment, and that's not just going to go away. Um, it's not really in China's interest to take it away either because that will irritate the public here. And if what they want is to charm Taiwan into unification someday, they're not going to do that by by taking economic incentives away from the Taiwanese. So um, China will probably do some symbolic things, and they already have. They have um, relations with the Gambia now, and 
Um, there's this fraud, this, these fraud networks that some people think are politically motivated. The tourist counts are down, university students from mainland China coming over here, numbers are down. So you see things like that. And then I think Thai will just let it go and test China to see how far they want to take this before they give up um, or if they want to, you know, really push it and risk upsetting the public here. Yeah, good idea. I mean, Tsai could let it go, but I'm just by letting it go and technically pushing China to one side and technically ignoring the issue, that could irk China in itself, though, couldn't it, really? Yeah, I don't think China's going to be happy at all, but then by but then they have to decide what to do, mm. um, other than, than, you know, fuming and talking and making threats, which I think everybody here knows are, are pretty hollow at the end of the day. Um, what are they going to do? To what extent can they take real sanctions or, or other measures that people here are going to notice um, in a way that would put pressure on Thai to do something, you know, mm-hmm. that's the question. They, they want to take measures that, that will force Thai into taking action, but not measures that will upset the, the Taiwanese voters and push the whole government toward a more um, pro-independent stance. And, of course, we've got the controversy going on as we speak about the, the World Health Assembly invitation, which has yet to arrive. It's apparently. last in the mail. I think it's last, last in the mail. Last in the mail, yes. <laughs> lost in the, and apparently there are, there are rumours, reports, speculation that China is involved in the delaying of the WHA invitation, mm. which, of course, none of it's been proven. Right, so that would just be another example of largely symbolic, mostly symbolic ways that uh, China is trying to put some pressure on Tsai Ing-wen to uh, influence yeah, how she might sure approach how this. People care about the WHA. It, it, it used to, it was, uh, it's not full WHO membership. Um, so, and I know that was an issue under when Ma first took off. It was a big credit for him to be able to show up for that as an observer. And then, not for him personally, but for Taiwan to go as an observer. And then I think it's kind of sort of fallen off the, 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 um, the map of things that people care about here. Well, until it makes the front pages of the newspapers with headlines that scream, Taiwan not allowed to ent- to attend WHA. Yeah, well, we'll see We'll see how people react to that. Uh, it's probably uh, the, the, the most bullish take we've gotten so far from one of our commentators on the post-Taiwan inauguration uh, speech. Uh, so let's, uh, let's just leave it there. Let's leave it on a bit of a positive note. And, uh, we of course will know in, uh, just a couple of weeks. So no sense doing all this speculation anyway. Moving over now into the realm of criminal law. We've got a couple criminal cases that are bringing the death penalty back into the news this week. Uh, along with big questions about Taiwan's criminal law system as a whole. Uh, first up, let's have Gavin uh, get us up to speed on these two cases. Let's get the first one that came out this week, the one involving Mr. Cheng Xingzhe. Yes, this, this, uh, this is a rather sorry case, Mr. Zheng Xingzhe. Well, he was released from prison this week after serving 14 years of a sentence for killing a... Or he was convicted of killing a police officer in January of 2002 in the city of Taichung. Now, he was convicted of the death, he was sent to prison, he was basically on death row for a while, until prosecutors said, well, hang on a minute, I think we need a retrial, because there's some new evidence that appears to cast doubt on his conviction. Mm. Well, the High Court this week released Jiang Xingzhe on bail, he's still banned from leaving the island, but basically, and according to prosecutors, 
evidence does point to him not being in a position. He was in a KTV room when the shooting right. took place, and apparently new evidence says that where he was located in the room where the, where the police officer was shot, it would have been impossible for him to have fired the handgun that killed the police officer. Right. So, uh, basically, he's been on death row in you know maximum security prison for, for for forever and ever now we're finding out perhaps uh he wasn't guilty at all so uh something of a disturbing revelation let's move on now though to kind of the uh opposite sort of situation of course you know people would react to that first case going how could it have been such a harsh punishment for a guy that maybe didn't do anything got kind of an opposite reaction for this next one uh for convicted killer tsung wen chi yes he was a chap that killed a 10-year-old boy in a video game arcade parlor in Tainan in 2012. Now, he was sentenced to life in prison in three cases. Yesterday's case at the High Court was the third case, I believe, when that was the third appeal, the last appeal, last hearing by prosecutors. And the prosecutors, of course, were seeking the death penalty for the killing of the 10-year-old, and the court said no... Evidence shows that he had some mental issues, and so we're sentencing him to life in prison. People are not happy about that. Well, people aren't happy about it, and today's China Times had a headline that screamed, Local courts sentenced 12 murderers to life in prison, not the death penalty in past year. Mm. So the pub Joe Public, of course, in Taiwan, as we're told by the government over and over, supports the death penalty. Right. It's pretty interesting that this is seen as uh, another one of those issues where the government is not following through on their promises to the public. I don't think that it would be framed this way in a lot of other countries, but in Taiwan, uh, that's certainly how it's often seen. Uh, all right. Now, as promised, uh, we do have some expert advice so that it's not just uh, us non-legal folk blabbing on about all this stuff. So joining us in studio now is Bob Cow. He is a California licensed lawyer currently researching shipping law and maritime piracy at Queen Mary University of London. Uh, listeners, though, probably would know him better as the man behind the Taiwan Law Blog, uh, which breaks down legal issues in Taiwan for an English-speaking audience. He joins us in studio right now. Bob, really good to have you here. Hi, Keith. Glad to be here. So we kind of have two cases on the opposite end of the spectrum. In the one case, uh, we're finding out that perhaps a guy was punished way more severely than he should have been for a crime he didn't commit. On the other hand... Uh, outcry uh, from the public that uh, a convicted killer is not getting a more harsh punishment. Uh, what do you take away from all this criminal news this week? Right. I mean, you would think that with the uh, wrongful conviction case that we have here, that maybe some people will think that uh, we should rethink the death penalty. You know, what if uh, this guy was executed and didn't have a chance for retrials? But it doesn't seem like that's what's happening. There's not a lot of rhetoric about looking at the death penalty or delaying it uh, so that uh, potential wrongful convictions can be looked at again. Mm. Um, and I think a large part of that is uh, maybe some people are thinking that the system actually worked the way that is designed. Uh, Zhen Xingze, you know, even though he was uh, uh, sentenced to death, now he's going to be free. So even though it's 14 years later, uh, he will be free and he hasn't been executed. So maybe the system worked. And I think some people might think that, well, he got 14 years of free housing, right? Free food, got a job. Now he's going to get compensated from the government for the wrongful conviction and imprisonment. Now he gets a, a retirement fund. I mm. think there's some 
uh, it's possible that uh, some people would think about this situation that way. And I think uh, it's it's very one particular uh, uh, interesting issue here is uh, he isn't actually uh, hasn't been uh, declared uh, not guilty yet. Right? right, there's still a retrial, uh, and even though the prosecutor has said he's not guilty, the defense obviously says he's not guilty. But we still have to go through this this uh, motion of going through a retrial. So that's it's a very interesting uh, situation, um, and and. There's not really a way for uh, the current the legal system to basically just declare him not guilty through a presidential pardon or any executive action. So, I think perhaps that's something to be to looked at too. Um, whether uh, presidential pardons, and I think this is a important issue with Chen uh, Shui-bian. That's always gets talked about. Uh, maybe that uh, power needs to be looked at uh, through some kind of legislation, uh, because even though pardons are uh, in the constitution. Actual the actual way that pardons work and the eligibility is only law, and that can be easily changed uh, through a DPP-led uh, legislature. Mm. Now, another kind of interesting angle to all this is I think we've seen in uh, similar cases before in Taiwan that it can af- often, uh, even when you have pretty strong evidence that uh, indicates that somebody isn't the guilty party, it can still take a pretty long time in Taiwan for uh, any kind of retrial or any kind of reassessment of the situation to take place. Uh, according to the Taipei Times in this case, uh, this is the first case in which uh, a death sentence was uh, upheld by the Supreme Court is getting to receive a retrial. Uh, so do you see that angle here at all? Uh, just the difficulty at times of re-reviewing cases? Yeah, I think it's uh, uh, this case, um, uh, Chen Xinzi got lucky that he found a prosecutor that was willing to look at the issue again and look through the evidence and actually be the one that uh, is spearheading this retrial. Mm. Um, Otherwise, uh, you know, he probably would have, uh, uh, because there was a lot of uh, appeals for retrials, uh, many times that were rebuffed by the Supreme Prosecutor, by the defense. Um, So it was only this time um, that uh, a retrial was granted. So I think it's just a lucky case. and it's it's uh, I would say actually the control yuan um, actually had a played a role in this. Mm. Um, you know, maybe, many people think the control yuan is outdated. It's uh, we don't need it anymore. It needs to be scrapped. But they actually did an investigation to this case and found a lot of irregularities. Mm. And uh, I think that was part of the the push to to get him a retrial. Right. So uh, at, at at this point, uh, it does seem like the public is a little bit suspicious of the government's willingness uh, to carry out the death penalty, to follow through uh, on, uh, you know, executions. Uh, and they're always holding up, like we heard from Gavin a second ago, uh, statistics about uh, what many view as not enough follow through uh, on the death penalty. Uh, do, do you see that as a, a, an attitude that's going to be sustained into the tying one years, that kind of suspicion of the government uh, that they're not committed enough to the death penalty? You know, I think this public uh, expectation that we're always talking about, that the, the Ma administration is always talking about that, uh, you know, we need to, uh, we, we cannot abolish the death penalty because the public expects us to, to uh, sentence people to death and execute them. I think this is easily manipulated. Mm. Um, I think that's, it's, in part manufactured. I mean, we see the support for death penalty always in the 70s or 80s uh, when there's surveys done. Um, National uh, Zhongzhen University does a survey every year. It's always about 70 or 80% against the death penalty. And, um, you know, a lot of that is 
the media. We have newspapers like the China Times headline uh, that was mentioned. We have you know, Apple uh, Apple Daily. All these papers are always talking about people getting away with murder, uh, and we're not talking about the real issues like um, mental health, right? Because the the Tainan case uh, that was mentioned, uh, where um, he got the uh, life imprisonment, the court said he was mentally ill. So that's that's a concern, and that that's something that the public needs to. Uh, seriously, think about. We、mm. can't just be executing people because it makes us feel good, because it's eye for an eye justice.、Mm. We need to look at the deeper issues, and I think、uh, one way to do that is actually instead of these、uh, surveys where we have seventy seventy percent, eighty percent support for the death penalty, we need to learn why people are supporting the death penalty.、Mm. Do they have the right information? Do they know how the prison system work work? Do they know how the legal system works? Um, and maybe if they do、uh, learn a little bit more about the, how the legal system works, maybe、uh, they won't support the death, death penalty. Maybe the support won't be as high.、Mm-hmm. So I think it's important for these universities, or、uh, when they're doing these surveys, to do more in-depth qualitative interviews. You know,、mm-hmm. see what's behind this support, as opposed to just throwing these numbers out. Because、mm-hmm. these numbers really are just meaningless. Because we, human rights is not something that's That's dependent on people's opinions. You know?、mm-hmm. All right. Well, we've been talking right here to、uh, Bob Cow. He is the man behind the Taiwan Law Blog, which I've been following for quite a while. So,、uh, very happy to have you on the show. Can you stick around for a little bit? We've got a、uh, we got a, a lighter th- sort of story to end things out on. Can we get you、uh, to stick around for that one? Of course. Perfect. All right. Well, that's it for the first half of the show.、Uh, we're coming up on a break now. When we return, we'll talk about why some women's advocacy groups are criticizing the list of appointees to the incoming cabinet, and we'll round things out with a conversation about Taipei's most famous and most controversial monument. All that and more when we return to Taiwan this week. Welcome back to Taiwan this week. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Gavin Phipps, Ralph Jennings, and Bob Cow. Kicking off the second half, no girls allowed. Not many, anyway. In the incoming cabinet, which will serve as the leadership team for the executive yuan under the Tsai administration, here's the stat that's got everyone mad: out of the 40-person cabinet, only four are women.、Uh, now, this obviously goes against the expectation that many had、uh, for a cabinet serving under the first female president of Taiwan, but it's really low、uh, by any standard. The Taipei Times reports that it's in fact the lowest. Since 1997,、uh, meaning both of the past two administrations、uh, had more representative cabinets,、uh, and now a number of women's advocacy groups are criticizing this gender imbalance.、Uh, and to help us get a handle on why this might matter for Taiwan's future and its governance, and、uh, what laws may be passed in the next four to eight years,、uh, we've got Mei Shuenlin on the phone. She is the deputy chief executive of the Modern Women's Foundation.、Uh, Miss Lin, thanks for joining us. Hi, 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 Keith. So, of course, your group focuses、uh, on social outreach and support for women and、uh, the prevention of violence. And you know, you weren't one of the groups that protested outside of the DPP headquarters this week. There were a number of groups that made that protest right there.、Uh, but I did speak with you back in January,、uh, right after Tsai Ing-wen's inauguration, and you made the point to me at the time that you know you were very excited to see the first female president of Taiwan. But you were still going to keep an eye on how that administration conducted business, what it was up to.、Uh, so I just want to get your reaction. You know, since you are keeping an eye on things,、uh, what's your reaction to this cabinet? 
uh, yeah, uh, this is no doubt the saddest Mother's Day present to all women from the new cabinet that the lowest um, female uh, ca- uh, minister's rate uh, ever. Um, our, my, our reaction was very uh, disappointed to this, um, this result. Uh, since uh, this is the first time uh, female president, and we expected that we can break the glass ceiling for all women, but this time um, the, the cabinet ministers shows that the, the very low rate of women yeah, we feel very disappointed. Mm. All right. Well, let's get past the number uh, and maybe get your take on uh, how this is going to matter in somewhat more uh, concrete terms. Uh, I mean, there are really uh, real policy issues at stake here. These ministers are going to be presiding over government bodies, government organizations that will be making real decisions. Uh, how do you think this lack of women in the cabinet is going to actually impact the way Taiwan is governed? Yeah, uh, like long time ago, like 20 years ago, there was no prevention or protection for victims of sexual assault or domestic violence. There was nothing. Uh, and even we proposed a, a law uh, in the legislative yen, uh, but it, it did not uh, bring much support. But uh, women's group have to uh, force very hard and press very hard to make the act uh, happen. Uh, at the last moment when it happened, it was because somebody died from the uh, uh, sexual assault and some, somebody sacrificed in domestic violence. So that made the law happen. So that's something we worried. When the ratio is not balanced, uh, there's always a stronger opinion from men and overcome uh, woman's voice. Actually, um, I'm also very disappointed, of course, with uh, this uh, lack of women in the cabinet. But there are some people that say, you know, this is her first cabinet. Maybe uh, some of these will be will be sacrificial lambs. You know, they'll be they'll resign, and she'll probably appoint more women. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that. Um, but we can actually uh, very soon we'll be able to tell uh, mm-hmm. when five justices of the Constitutional Court will step down in October. And these are five men. Is Taiwan going to uh, appoint uh, women in these constitutional court? So and that's I- perhaps another upcoming test of uh, gender equality in this uh, administration. Right. We, I think, for for most of the women, we can we cannot wait. Okay. Um, uh, don't take uh, the first cabinet as an excuse. Look at the. Let's take the example of Canada. The Canada Prime Minister form the, the first gender equal cabinet in Canada now, and which is great. And uh, he, strong, uh, uh, he strongly supports women to be inside the cabinet, and uh, he also um, fight with the old men who, who want to insist uh, what they call profession first. But he insists uh, we have we need a gender equal cabinet. And he also mentioned gender equality is like uh, sky is blue, grass is green. It should be so natural. So uh, don't take the first cabinet as an excuse. So mm. if that, we will have to ask President Tsai, um, are you with people? 
are you with women? Do you really understand what people need? We really have to ask this question. Uh, for the last few years, Taiwan has implemented uh, what we call a gender mainstreaming policy as a national policy, uh, which means in whatever uh, local cabinet or committees, no, uh, uh, no gender has to less than one-third of the ratio. So each gender has to be over one-third of the ratio. And, and for the last few years, Taiwan is working well and putting uh, all the policy, all the strategy in the right direction, mm. uh, in the gender mainstreaming direction. So you can see every committee, every, um, every board meetings, they have the ratio uh, at least one gender, no less than one third. But the, now we see the central cabinet, that's the one who violates this, this principle. It's a shame. Mm. Right. So uh, definitely a lot of folks out there scratching their heads, wondering uh, why the first administration led by uh, a female president uh, is getting the marks that it's getting. Once again, that was Mei Xuan Lin on the phone. Uh, she is the deputy chief executive of the Modern Women's Foundation. And uh, we do appreciate you providing your thoughts on this issue. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Keith. All right. Well, uh, we are going to move on to our final story for the broadcast and another challenge for the Tsai administration. That administration has, of course, promised transitional justice. Uh, you know, that would mean the righting of Taiwan's historical wrongs over the next number of years. That could mean two different things, though. Uh, on the one hand, it could mean the prosecuting of uh, the pro perpetrators of human rights abuses committed during the martial law period. Uh, or it could also mean the washing away of the symbols, of what many view as the symbols of that authoritarian period, uh, washing that away from the present. Well, we saw a bit of the latter this week, with members of the new power party calling for the demolition of the Chiang Kai-shek memorial. Uh, now, Gavin, uh, what was the NPP saying there? Uh, they didn't actually call for the debt. They didn't want the, the they didn't want JCBs and big diggers to move in there immediately and just knock it all down. Some of them were saying that it should be repurposed, the whole area. Repurposed, repurposed is, I think, the polite way of saying that they weren't quite... They didn't want the diggers to move in immediately. But they did say, this is New Power Party lawmaker Xu Yongming, and he said that he believes the public, Joe Public, should be given the opportunity to decide the future of the Taipei Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall. Mm -hmm. And, of course, if you've been to Taipei, the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall is the building in the what was the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall Plaza. Mm -hmm. Now, the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall Plaza was renamed the Liberty Plaza some years ago. During the Chen, Chen administration. administration no he, coincidence. There's a big archway at the front of it next to Zhongshan South Road, and he took down where it said the Chiang Kai... He, Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Plaza, and he put up the Liberty Plaza sign. Mm -hmm. There was massive protests about that. Mm. Basically, when that happened, right. people were up in arms. Certain people were up in arms over that, whereas certain people were quite happy about it. And this all gets back, basically, to the identity issue. Do you see uh, Chiang Kai-shek as a positive historical figure or uh, as a less positive historical yes. figure? So this, this, anyway, they, they had a debate this week, the Tuesday of this week, and they, they invited academics and the administrators of the Memorial Hall to come and give their opinions about what should happen to it. And predictably enough, the academics were polite and they proposed converting it into a repository of records relating to all of Taiwan's presidents. 
Mm. They were polite. And, of course, the National Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall management team defending the building's use, saying they had been working on changing the hall's image for a long time now, and they've opened it up to numerous exhibitions over the years, which range from dinosaurs to a Disney movie. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, the management of the hall is saying, hey, look, you know, OK, it's got a bunch of stuff in there. We're using it. We're using it. To Chiang Kai-shek, but we are using it for other, you know, purposes that might get children in there. Families in there. Symphonies in there. And to be honest with you, Keith, I do like the cars that are in there. Oh, the cars? What cars? You've never seen the cars in there. Chiang Kai-shek's cars are in this building. Really? No, I've never seen them. They're nice cars. Oh, man. Oh, oh, well, I, I've just seen the desk. The desk was less oh, impressive. The, that's, that's, that's a bit boring. The desk is oh, a man, bit I missed boring. out the on the cars. Nice. And, of course, at the Chiang Kai-shek Memorial Hall, which is based on the... Ralph, I'm sure you'll correct me here if I get the name of it wrong. The Temple of Heaven in Beijing. Uh, it, it, this is certainly a resemblance. Whether one's <laughs> based on another, it's hard to know. <laughs> mm. Yeah, but that's what it looks like anyway. And, of course, they have a lot of things in there, but then it's based on Chiang Kai-shek. Right. A polarizing figure in Taiwan's history. Now, interestingly, also this week, uh, we heard from a new KMT chairwoman, Hong Shouju, that was kind of warning about uh, cultural Taiwanese independence. That's the term that she used, uh, this idea that Taiwan culturally would be moving away from China, away from uh, those historical symbolic figures uh, that identify as Chinese. Uh, And so we can see, you know, we're moving into a greener period, politically speaking, but uh, there are still many that would uh, see these moves as rather unfriendly uh, to be taking out, you know, all of the Chiang Kai-shek statues and names of everything across the island. So still a very uh, contentious issue. Ralph, uh, do you see this proposal going anywhere? I mean, do we see... Uh, under the Thai administration, similar policies to what we saw under the Chen administration? I think it could go somewhere. Technically, they have all the votes. Um, In a couple of weeks' time, the presidency will be controlled by the DPV. The legislature already is. If they want to go and move the statue or get rid of the entire building in which the statue sits, they can do that. I don't see any actual true obstacles. Um, It's an old issue. As you mentioned, the... uh, DPP government under Chen Shabian uh, did similar things or, and tried to do a lot more that it didn't quite accomplish, partly because the parliament was against him then. Um, I would only have to say that if, if they, um, this is just me speaking, but if the party is trying to discredit Chiang Kai-shek, maybe they should leave him there and change the plaque so that we have an understanding of some of the, <clears throat> the not-so-glorious things that he did and you mm. still let people go see it. If they don't see him at all, then what do they know about him? You know, if, if, that's, if that's their goal, I may, they may be, there may be a very cheap and easy solution, which is take down the plaque that's there now, put up a new one. Mm. Let, let's look at this. I mean, of course, they do have the votes. Uh, so, you know, politically, if the will is there, there's nothing to really stop that from happening. Uh, but let's think about priorities for a second. Uh, if this kind of, uh, you know, taking down of some of these uh, symbols that the DPP finds distasteful, these historical symbols, uh, if they really pursue that aggressively, uh, is that going to compromise some of the other policy goals that they've set for their administration? Because there's so many other issues, you know, from energy to international trade deals that uh, are really going to be weighing on the Thai Ing-wen uh, agenda. Uh, could this be a distraction? I don't think so. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy thing to do. It's popular. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek has been out of fashion for years and years and years. We have the 
the uh, the bus and the effigies on school campus issue that came up a couple years ago, and now we have this, and then before that we had the same type of issue under under Chinchavia, and so it's nothing new. There's an enormous amount of public support. Um, it would make the party sparkle for a minute. You know, you can imagine the photos and the videos that would go around in the media the day that the the bulldozers show up there. Um, you know, if the, if the statue's actually dismantled, then that's quite a quite a show. Makes the party look good. Um, I, I see it as being very low risk, and it probably wouldn't eat up a lot of their time either. In other words, they can still talk about nuclear energy and um, economic development and some of the, the weightier issues that, that are still out there. So you don't see, perhaps, for example, the Hong Shouju wing of the KMT party, you, you don't see them uh, being able to make much political hay out of this? I doubt it. Um, the, the only thing they could might appeal to the public would, on would be, hey, this is, a, this is a landmark. Whether you like the guy inside or not, this is a Taipei landmark. It's always been there. We get tourists from all over the world who come and stare at it and take pictures. So maybe we shouldn't be destroying it wholesale. That's the only thing that she might say that would wash with the public. Of course, the big issue of dealing with Chiang Kai-shek is what are they going to put on the money? Hmm. Well, there's some nice pheasants that are on some of the money. Just put it on both sides, I guess. There you go. Pictures of so children. If you start, if you do, if you go down certain roads with removing effigies and mentioning and monuments to Chiang Kai-shek, eventually you are going to have to touch on the national currency. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, it becomes a fraught road very quickly. Uh, you don't have to walk too far down that road for it to become quite a difficult one to walk. But uh, we're going to stop walking that road ourselves right now round out that last broadcast story right there and move on to our final story for our podcast listeners. Of course, we always like to stick in a nice little lighter side sort of thing to lighten the mood a bit uh, for our podcast listeners. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, electric bikes. Yes, the Ministry of Transport this week said that licenses and helmets will soon be mandatory for people using electric bicycles. Now, this comes amid concern about the rise in the number of electric bicycles on our streets and the fact that they have they can actually reach a speed of like a 50cc scooter. Mm-hmm. You know, this, you're talking a good... So you're cranking along you're, a little you're, bit. You're, you can go a bit of a speed, and if you hit a hill, you're going to be going faster. Yeah. You know, so there's concern that this could cause accidents. Now, government statistics show there are currently 180,000 electric bicycles in use in Taiwan, and the number of accidents and violations on these bicycles is increasing. Mm. The number of people injured by electric bicycles rose from 369 in 2011 to nearly 1,500 last year. Now, although nobody died on electric bicycles in Taiwan in 2011, Four people died in electric bicycle accidents in 2014 and 2015. All those speed demons on their yep. electric bicycles. Now, based on a proposal... Do we have any electric bicycle gangs yet? No. That's when we really start no, need we, to yeah, crack down. We've got to worry about them, because they'll start selling methamphetamine and things on their electric bicycles. But they'll be much more green methamphetamine, environmentally that's friendly. That's true, that's true. Anyway, the Road Traffic Management and Penalty Act will stipulate, thanks to these rule changes, that electric bicycles will be legally defined as a type of lightweight scooter, and mm. both written and practical <laughs> tests will be required before a license can be issued, or you're allowed to ride one. Now, this is the... I, I, I have no... No question or no point to make at all about having a license for these things because i have no don't really care about it i walk and take taxis but i am glad that they're removing 
electric bicycles from sidewalks. Yeah. Because you can't hear the buggers coming. That's just another thing that's coming up behind you to kill you. And you can't hear them. Yeah. Have you got, a, have you got an electric bike, Ralph? No, I still use my feet. There you go. Yeah, you go. Got another walking guy. Uh, Bob, what about you? Do you spend much time in Taipei? Not too much. I don't even think I remember how to ride a bike anymore. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay, so this policy doesn't uh, affect us, any of us, too much, I guess. Uh, do, do you have a license for a scooter? I don't. I don't think I can ride a scooter either. It's not, I don't have balance. So. Wow. It's a, quite a feat. We assembled four non-scooter riders in they Taiwan. Are quite, they are quite funky looking, these new electric bikes, though. Yeah. Yeah. They don't just look like bikes. Uh-huh. They look like pretty amazing bikes, actually. Like snazzy bikes. It's like snazzy bikes, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, uh, some extra protection for folks on their snazzy bikes out there. Uh, I, I don't see any problem with this. I mean, if you're, if you're going to strap a motor to something, you know, it's worth being a little bit extra careful. But we'll leave it on that thought there for today. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcasts every Friday evening at 8.30 p.m. right here on ICRT FM 100. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes. Uh, And we've also started posting to the ICRT blog. You can find it there. Please do leave a comment while you're visiting. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Thank you, Gavin. Hey, good night. Bob Cow, right here as well. Good evening to you. Good evening. And by phone, we've got Ralph Jennings. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Keith. Thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.